You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find courses, resources, and Australia's most supportive writing community. Today, you're listening to one of our in between episodes where we listen to a story session with our guest author of the week. This story session is brought to you by the book So You Want to Be a Writer. Do you want to write a novel or earn an income as a freelance writer? We give you the steps you need to make your dream a reality in So You Want to Be a Writer, the book. The book lays out a blueprint to help you get started and thrive in the world of words. With advice from over 120 writers, you'll tap into proven wisdom and find the path that will lead you to success. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash book. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that we've written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. But back to our story session where you'll hear directly from our featured author about their writing life and processes along with the first chapter of their book. And who knows, you may discover your next favourite read. It's just one of the many ways we love to support our reading and writing community in Australia and around the world. This week, I've chosen Murder Most Fancy by Kelly McCourt. This is the follow-up novel to Kelly's debut novel, Heiress on Fire. And once again, we join billionaire heiress Indigo and her assistant Esmeralda as they get involved with Murder's Most Fancy. Here's the blurb. Home for just 48 hours, billionaire-ess, indigo, daisy, violet, amber, Hasluck, Royce, Jones, Bomberg, has already committed two, completely understandable, felonies, reignited a childhood feud, been possibly humiliated again by her first love, and fallen over a nameless, homeless dead man, all while strolling in her grandmother's garden. Grandmother's kindly neighbour, Dame Elizabeth Holly, wants to spring the anonymous corpse from the coroner's freezer. She's convinced Indigo and her parolee personal assistant, Esmeralda, can unearth the man's identity, thus allowing his burial. Meanwhile, Grandmother wants the unlikely duo to locate Dame Holly's possibly missing gentleman friend. Dame Holly's miserly granddaughter and not-so-bright son don't want her involved with any man, dead or alive. Are the cases related? Why are they receiving clues from an unknown helper? Should they cooperate with the detectives Searing and Burns, who tried to arrest Indigo for blowing up her plastic surgeon husband last summer? What is Esmeralda's secret? It's not so bad to undress a detective. Twice. Is it? How illegal can it be, really, to break into a top-secret government facility? They're not annoying a ruthless, organised criminal on purpose. They're just trying to help. 
Wow, what a roller coaster. As you'll hear in her introduction, Kelly loves to entertain her readers and this book sure does that. So here is Kelly McCourt and her latest novel, Murder Most Fancy. Hi everyone, I'm Kelly McCourt. I am the author of Murder Most Fancy. I am a long-time listener of Valerie and Allison's. I have on my imaginary authorial blazer and I'm feeling way better than middling because I'm so excited to be on this podcast. Thank you for asking me. Okay, so Valerie has also asked me to answer some questions before narrating the first chapter of Murder Most Fancy, my new book. So here goes. Question one, what inspired me to write this story? Okay, well, I'm a huge murder mystery fan, which is why I write murder mysteries. Um, I write a particular type of murder mystery novel um, because it's my favourite genre. But after many, many, many years of reading murder mysteries, I realised that so many, and I thought too many, involved sexual violence towards women or children. It just seemed like we were always being stalked or abducted or raped or tortured or held captive or all of those things, and I was just over it. Um, It very much felt like commodifying sexual violence towards women, and I just wasn't okay with it. Uh, So I decided to do something about it, and I wrote a murder mystery specifically without sexual violence towards women or children in it. So I'm not profiting from sexual violence or sexual abuse. I'm not promoting it and I'm not normalising it. Um, I actually read a quote from uh, Molly Ringwald the other day who did 16 Candles and lots of those big sort of of coming-of-age movies, and she said, if attitudes towards female subjugation are systemic, and I believe that they are, it stands to reason that the art we consume and sanction play some part in reinforcing those same attitudes. And that pretty much sums up, she said it much better than I could, that pretty much sums up um, yeah, what I was thinking. Okay, so my next requirement was that the book be really entertaining and funny. Um, there's no point in writing something that's not entertaining. Yes, it needs to have meaning, but it has to be entertaining. It has to be both. And, of course, suspenseful if it's going to be a murder mystery. You want a page turner. Um, If I'm going to ask you, the reader, to invest your time with me, I feel like I owe you that. Um, I also wanted to write something that challenged stereotypes, so I wanted characters of different ages, some in their 20s or 30s, yes, but some in their 70s or 80s and everything in between. Um, I also wanted characters with different backgrounds to mix together, so people from different cultural, ethnic, social, economic, Uh, educational, geographic backgrounds, and I wanted all of those characters to be really captivating, uh, lovable, hateable, memorable. So I hope I did that. (laughs) I'll let you be the judge. Um, And what else inspired me? Well, I was a television journalist and producer and host for a long, long time, and some stories you just never forget. They just stay with you forever. And one of those stories about something quite shocking that happened in Australia many, many years ago, something that I had no idea about until I researched and wrote that story and did those interviews, that was very inspirational for me. It sounds quite cryptic, but I can't say what that thing was without really spoiling the story of Murder Most Fancy. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But it was a completely amazing thing and a real revelation to me. 
I also really just like writing about insanely fantastic things, you know, from private jets to delicious pastries and foods. So it helps to have a central character who's a billionaire that is, allows me to do so many things. And I'm also then able to sprinkle that stuff through the book. There's not too much of it because that would be a bit boring and annoying, but just enough to be crazy and fun. And what else? Um, I'm inspired by all kinds of wonderful women to write stories that empower and entertain. It has to be both. I'm really lucky to have some incredible female friends and two incredible children who I just love to pieces. And I feel like I owe it to them to empower them rather than objectify them. So, yes, that's what inspires me. Okay, question two. Can you describe your writing process? Okay, so I'm both a planner slash plotter and a fly by the city of your pants. I love a mind map. Uh, so you'll see big posters stuck to the walls in my kitchen and lounge room with like arrows going everywhere, lines about who's doing what to who and speech bubbles with names and aliases all over them. It's in pencil. I write it in pencil and I do a lot of rubbing out um, and rewriting, rubbing out and rewriting. Sometimes I do so much that I have to get a new piece of paper and start over because there's so many things that are rubbed out and rewritten. I stick that to the wall and then I keep a pencil nearby and when I think of something new, I write it in. I, As a side note, I spend a lot of time <laughs> just staring into space thinking about storylines, running the scenarios over and over in my head um, until they're pitch perfect. You run it in your head and say, no, that doesn't work or what about this or what about that? I just run them over and over until I get to a place where they're, they're pitch perfect. Um, the posters <laughs> do end up looking rather like the wall or a copper of a copper or a detective you see in a movie. You know, the ones that are completely obsessed with catching some kind of serial killer and they've got those big um, posters on the walls with pins in them and bits of string going from here to there. It looks a little bit crazy, um, but it works for me. So whatever works for you, then you do that. Okay, so that said, I base a lot on my characters and I spend a lot of time developing characters. I have to know absolutely everything about them, where they grew up, where they went to school, who their parents are, who their siblings are, who their friends are, what were the events that shaped them, you know, what's their favourite breakfast cereal, what kind of car do they drive, where do they live, you name it, I want to know it about the character. So I go quite deep. And I find that I can't write without that depth of character. I really need that. So that's, for me, that's really, really important. Um, once I've done that, then I put the character or characters in whatever situation I've plotted out on the giant mind map. So it's a bit like a game board. So if my mind map is the Monopoly board, then my characters are the players. Then I put them on that board and I just see what they do. I just let them do whatever they want to do. They've got free reign. Um, sometimes they, <laughs> actually too often than I'd like, they write me into a corner and I have to think of my a way out of it. So that's where a lot of the twists and terms, turns come from there very natural because I'm not actually making them up. The 
the characters are doing their own thing and wherever they end up is wherever they end up. My writing process also involves a lot of prep and a lot of interviews. So I like research. I really enjoy it and I do quite a lot of it. I do interviews with everyone I can get my hands on, doctors, forensic pathologists, law enforcement, prison guards, uh, the people who track criminals, people who track their money. I love it all. I do it all. Um, I find reading newspaper and magazine articles really helpful. I do a lot of that. If I'm reading a story and I find it interesting, I'll either print it out or email it to myself. Um, I keep notes on my phone. There's post-it notes <laughs> floating around <laughs> everywhere. And I keep it all in a file. So when I'm ready to write, I then print it all out and stick it in a full scap file with dividers between each story. And yes, I use one of those or two of those or I combine them as a part of the story. I find that really helpful. I remember listening to Elizabeth Jolly speak and she used to do a similar thing where she had an idea, she'd write it down on a piece of paper, put it on her kitchen bench and then put a clean tea towel on top of it. And then if she had another idea, she'd write that down on a piece of paper and put that on top of the tea towel and then put another tea towel on top of it. And she said once she had a stack of tea towels a certain height, she knew she was ready to start a new book. So I guess my um, folders and emails and notes are my version of Elizabeth Jolly's tea towel stack. Um, yeah, I find there has to be some real life story in the fictional story somewhere. It just doesn't work for me otherwise. Uh, what else? Well, pragmatically speaking, when I'm in writing mode, I try to get 2,000 words a day out. I can caveat this by saying that if you're a single mum or dad or any mum really, if you're doing homeschooling with kids during lockdown and you get anything even close to 1,000 words a day, then you should be throwing yourself a party because <laughs> that's not been easy. Oh, my goodness. If you're writing as a side hustle while you're also working, then you should get two parties and if you're doing both of those things then just go buy yourself something very shiny and completely gorgeous because you're an absolute legend. What was the most challenging aspect of writing Murder Most Fancy? We already talked about homeschooling so let's just put a pin in that and make that uh, assumed that that was challenging for everyone working from home, etc., etc. I actually broke my right leg disco ice skating. So that, <laughs> that meant I couldn't go anywhere. And I think actually, I think that might have helped me. I, I was held captive, so I couldn't drive anywhere. So maybe that wasn't challenging. That Maybe that actually helped me. We had a sensitivity reader for Murder Most Fancy, which was so interesting. I really enjoyed learning about all the technicalities of neurodivergency. Again, I'm not sure if that was a challenge because I really enjoyed it. I'm struggling with this question. Um, feedback? Feedback is extremely productive and helpful, but sometimes it can be, you know, you've got to put your big girl pants on. Um, but I do find it very helpful again. Uh, what else? Oh, getting interviews with law enforcement can be tricky. Um, although, <laughs> I have to say again, the media person from the AFP, Julie Hope, she was so helpful. So <laughs> maybe not that either. 
I guess the biggest challenge is actually just sitting down and writing, you know, 100,000 words or 120,000 words. It's, you know, that, that in itself is a challenge. Um, I feel like I failed to answer this question properly. Uh, oh, you know what? I had planned a trip to go to the Northern Territory to do some research because the Northern Territory is featured in Murder Most Fancy and I couldn't go. So I think that was probably, yes, the most annoying thing. Not sure that's the most challenging thing, so I'm going to take it. That's my final answer. What was the most rewarding aspect of writing Murder Most Fancy? I think definitely writing a funny, hopefully highly entertaining murder mystery that's got really diverse characters, that's uplifting for women and girls, that doesn't objectify or commodify them, doesn't profit from sexual violence or abuse. That is the most rewarding thing for me. I really wanted to create something that would allow my readers to escape into another world, somewhere really uplifting, while also changing the status quo. I feel like I've done something worthwhile. I feel like I've made a difference, even if it's only a very, very small one. Um, I feel like it's a start. And I guess that segues quite nicely into the first answer of the final question, which is, what are your top three tips for aspiring writers? They would be, one, write something you're passionate about, two, read widely, and three, learn. Um, so, yes, write something you're passionate about. Research and writing a book takes a really long time and a lot of energy. Uh, so if you choose something you're really passionate about, like I love murder mysteries and I love funny books and I love comedies and I love things that are uplifting, so that's what I'm passionate about and that helps me to stay focused and also to stay motivated. Um, but you can write about subject matter that you really care about if you're really enthusiastic about you know, art or cars or jewellery or whatever it is, you know, write something that you're passionate about or at least involve that. I have to say that needs to be tempered by with keeping your audience entertained. So, yes, be passionate, but don't cross the line into self-indulgent. I know that when I was in my 20s, I wrote a feature film script, which was just awful. Man, it was so bad. It was really just a 90-minute lecture about something. I can't even remember what it was about that I was very, very passionate and political about at the time. Um, and it was awful. It never saw the light of day, nor should it have. Um, so, yeah, that was a lesson I learned really early on um, which is, you know, if your audience is going to sit with you, they don't know you. You owe them entertainment. You owe them information. You owe them, a, you know, something that is going to be worth their time. And for me, I think I have to entertain them. I have to give them something that has some meaning. And for me, it also really needs to be fun. So, yeah. Uh, second thing, read. Oh, I know everyone says read. But it's so true. I read everything. Uh, I was a journal for many, many years, so I read lots of newspapers and magazines. Um, you know, I read the feed on my phone, which I curate, um, books. Look, I read ads on the sides of buses because there might be something in there that just triggers something in my brain that inspires me, um, you know, and, and it all gets 
gets written down in notepads or on notes on my phone. Um, yeah, I read absolutely everything. And even non-fiction academic papers I find really helpful, reference books, that type of thing. Um, and if you read something and you don't like it, just think of it as a learning opportunity. Sometimes I read something and maybe not necessarily the whole thing I don't like, but there's a section I don't like or it rubs me up the wrong way and I think, why? And that really helps me to grow as a writer if I think, okay, um, uh, is it annoying me because it's something I do or is it annoying me for another reason? And I try to use that as a, as a growing opportunity, as a learning opportunity to grow as a writer. Uh, which is tip three, learn. Um, my pop, who lived until he was 95 and was still reading books, uh, novels and uh, autobiographies, always said to me, kid, the day you stop learning is the day you start dying. And I think that's completely true. Um, and look, you don't need a, an English degree or a comms degree or a postgrad in creative writing to write a book. You just don't. Do short courses, do classes, uh, read books about writing, go to writers' festivals, listen to lectures, um, listen to podcasts with writers. I do all those things and, and I practice writing a lot. And I cannot imagine I would ever get to a stage in my life where I would stop doing any of those things. You've just got to keep learning. For me, that's so important. So, yes, those are my top three tips. Uh, be passionate but not indulgent read and keep learning keep learning okay right on that note thank you very much for investing your time with me today i greatly appreciate it and i hope that i've entertained you and i hope that reading this first chapter of murder most fancy is even more entertaining than listening to me talk about um my writing process okay so here we go this is the first chapter of my book uh, murder most fancy by me, Kelly McCourt. Thanks very much. Here we go. Murder Most Fancy by Kelly McCourt. Chapter One, The Garden Miser. I was sitting quietly in the morning sun, sipping freshly squeezed juice, having popped around the corner from Mother's Barbie Life in the Dream House, Vaucluse Mansion, to Grandmother's Downton Abbey, Vaucluse Mansion, to borrow a cup of sugar and to admire her spring bulbs. I cannot believe you expect us to pay that kind of money for this. Well, I might have known Grandmother was away in London this week. And by sugar, I mean a tiny Vermeer oil painting and a minuscule Monet, both simply borrowed, you understand. I might not actually have been in direct sunlight per se, rather I was laid out inside grandmother's enormous glass orchid palace with hundreds of handcrafted hanging baskets lined with dazzling green sphagnum moss suspended from the transparent ceiling by copper rods brimming with white cattleya orchids the vast polished concrete floor thick with giant ceramic pots of vibrant blue banders pink cymbidiums and purple blooming phalaenopsis impossible to pronounce but very pretty to look at. And by juice, I mean a Caprioscar, which is full of lime juice. It cannot possibly take a team of you three months to grow off your bulbs. Spring in Sydney is usually a happy time. Bulbs planted in the winter work their way up through the rich dirt, blooming into a rainbow of tulips, fragrant oriental lilies and bright daffodils. 
the more spectacular the spring garden the more adulation the proud estate owner receives and the larger the garden staff's christmas bonuses the gorgeous garden game is a kind of win-win spring sport that doesn't involve horses shooting or a roulette table am i supposed to be impressed by these paltry tulips claire the obnoxious voice belongs to bettina holly a classic garden miser the garden miser is a child or grandchild who thinks all estate expenses from garden staff wages to life support bills should be cut to the bone or better yet switched off and the resulting surplus diverted directly into their trust fund having christian and surnames hyphenated four times my name is indigo daisy violet amber haslop royce jones bomberg means i have multiple trust funds i don't want any additional funds diverted into any of them this doesn't mean i want less i have a certain lifestyle to maintain my point is that i'm not in a rush to turn off anyone's hoses i didn't usually give much thought to the gorgeous garden game after all my primary residence was the three-story penthouse of a recently exploded double bay apartment building not much ongoing gardening there however the louder bettina the garden miser shrieked the more i felt the borrowed paintings wrapped carefully in silk scarves and sitting safely in the bottom of my black leather bottega veneta tote glow with not quite yet bequeathed could possibly technically be considered larceny in my defense grandmother has so many and i needed the art to freshen up mother's pool house where i was residing until the insurance company and the local council deigned to cooperate long enough to rebuild said three exploded stories while it's true that my living arrangements had changed because my penthouse had been set on fire by me it was a complete accident i wasn't responsible for the exploding part either okay maybe i was technically responsible for some of the little explosions but not the giant fatal ones you think this is a good result i may have also set my husband dr richard bomberg mbbs frax a shortish endearingly plump thinningly blonde haired uber conservative ultra reliable reconstructive plastic surgeon and a very loyal sex worker named crystal divine on fire another terrible accident i should clarify that their deaths were not my doing even though i had been the prime suspect a video of me escaping the fire while on fire was watched by two billion people a torrent of heiress on fire tabloid and social media gossip followed overnight i went from mysterious elusive billionaires to black widow social circus freak mortifying according to the best pr women in new york london singapore and sydney a scandal of this magnitude would take 2-3 years to fade from the minds of polite society and that's assuming extremely good behavior and zero publicity on my part on the upside being a disgraced billionaire social pariah has saved me from having to attend dozens of dog parties at least 6 weddings and innumerable fundraisers the charities nobody's ever heard of as tempting as it was to hide out on a host of incredible tropical islands forever 
I'd spent many, many months island hopping, so believe me, two to three years on any island is forever. I realised I needed to come home to Australia. I wasn't exactly sure what I was coming back to do, but whatever it was, I was going to do it extremely quietly. If Grandfather were alive, he would never have allowed such a waste. Bettina is the granddaughter of Grandmother's neighbour and despite all odds, best friend, not that Grandmother would admit to having a best friend, Dame Elizabeth Holly. Bettina is a petite, mousy brunette who has fewer muscles than a banana and if my childhood memory served, I attended St Ignatius Ladies, Co Ladies College with Bettina and her sister Gilly ate nothing from the fun food groups. Unlike Bettina, Gilly or Grandmother, Dame Elizabeth is a lovely woman, kind, generous and gentle. She donates a shocking amount to the liberal arts and although her granddaughters are neither liberal nor artistic, she donates a shocking amount to them too. Well, speak Claire, speak, say something. Through the gaps in the orchard-clad glass wall, I could see Bettina standing at the edge of Dame Elizabeth's garden, shrieking at a shell-shocked, khaki-clad, middle-aged woman, desperately clutching a couple of gardening tools. That had to be Claire. Poor, unfortunate Claire. Claire, who was now desperately looking around for something. Perhaps Dame Elizabeth to use as a human shield or a seed bag with which to suffocate Bettina. Prize-winning? I doubt it. Bettina yelled, pointing to a row of metre-high tulips with heads the size of teacups. Tulips are, to Dame Elizabeth's enormous garden, what orchids are to Grandmother's glass palace. Her garden is a sea of flowers. If she chose to turn commercial, Dame Elizabeth could give the Netherlands a run for its money in the tulip exportation game. With immaculate timing, Esmeralda, exited Grandmother's scullery and sauntered down the garden path into the orchid palace while snacking on a sandwich inconceivably wide with fillings. Dude, she managed between bites. That chick next door's pissed about them flowers. Where's my Caprioska? I asked, inspecting my now empty glass. She shrugged. I don't know. Who the hell's John Quills? Bettina had stopped yelling about tulips and had moved on to the John Quills. John Quills, I explained, joining the flower back into one piece. Huh? she asked, shaking her head, pointing her half-eaten sandwich at me. It's a flower, a type of daffodil. Oh, I get it, she nodded, taking another bite. Like river. It was my turn to deliver a blank look. You know... Jonquil and like river. Working the lanky surfer out was like trying to escape from mental quicksand. The more you resisted, the more trapped you became. Rain, she said loudly between chops, raising her voice to be heard over Bettina's yelling. Selma! I tried not to struggle. It was almost best, always best, to breathe deeply, assume the prayer position, and wait for the sand to stop moving. Phoenix, she said once she'd finished her sandwich. You know, River Phoenix, John Quill Phoenix, the actor dudes, they've got all their nature names, Rain and Summer Phoenix. See? Esmeralda is a five foot ten, 
Asian Australian with a rap sheet of suspected crimes almost as long as she is. She has impossible cheekbones, naturally flawless skin and long silky shampoo ad hair. Her beach brown body is too toned for someone who has never seen the inside of a gym and too thin to be fair. Esmeralda's like a limited edition crocodile Birkin bag with the teeth left in. I'm not remotely exotic. I come from all British and Western European stock. I'm at least an inch shorter, bounce between a size 10 and 12. Okay, mainly 12. Have bright green eyes, skin that is only flawless thanks to high-priced pharmacological adherence and too thick long brown hair that requires highlights and daily professional maintenance. When Esmeralda's luck at dodging convictions finally ran out, she found herself in Silverwater Women's Correctional Centre, which is where my mother found her, up for parole and the perfect candidate for mother's latest pet project, the absurd but very real and state-sanctioned Model Mentor Prison Program. My mother is Catherine the Cat Jones. Yes, that Cat Jones. The flawless, semi-retired, six-foot, super-slim, supremely gorgeous, blonde supermodel. Come super-mogul, semi-Buddhist, woke guru. If you think that sounds wonderful, then you stand next to her in a bikini. While modelling loved Esmeralda, she walked for Dior and Gucci in her first few weeks of freedom. She did not love it. She didn't like being touched by strangers or being told what to do or wearing anything but jeans and a T-shirt. Esmeralda would rather skirt the law than wear an actual skirt, even if the skirt is Chanel, and even if the designers at Chanel are willing to pay her to wear it. This was problematic. Being gainfully, um, legally employed was and remains one of Esmeralda's parole conditions. Given her limited, legitimate employment history and her dislike of modelling, she ended up with me. Richard's death devastated me, and I needed someone unconventional to assist me in addressing the many issues that arose from being a mourning widow and a double homicide suspect. Esmeralda was uniquely qualified. Technically speaking, Esmeralda is my personal shopper, although I would die before I let her shop for anything for me, and that includes basics like bread and water. Her role lands closest to extremely unique personal assistant. Shockingly, we work well together and were able to find Richard and Crystal's killer. Then again, not finding the killer could have landed us both in jail, so we were highly motivated. It was an enormous relief. For a while there, even I thought I was guilty. I always thought Esmeralda would be an improper influence on me, and she is, but to be fair, I may also be a tiny, ever so slightly, not completely law-abiding influence on her. Only when absolutely required, though, such as when one needs a Monet. After the real murderer was arrested, I went into hiding on the Fifi Islands, dragging Esmeralda with me. I needed time to grieve, time to think. Some people fake their deaths. Richard, my perfect, nutritious, bran muffin husband, had, as it turned out, faked his life 
which meant that the life I thought I had with him was an illusion. Esmeralda was walking along the inside edge of the glass house, tapping at the polished concrete floor with her sneaker-clad foot. God, the sneakers. I cannot discuss it. Bettina continued to berate the poor gardener. She seemed determined, determined through sheer volume to trip someone's security alarm or to wake one of the ancient security guards. For goodness sake, Bettina, I shouted through the glass wall. Be quiet. Bettina's voice paused momentarily, as if she'd heard me, then started up again. Look at these, Claire. These are, have crawly bugs all over them. She wasn't going to stop, ever. And I had my eye on a sweet little Ming vase that would look fabulous in the poorhouse kitchen. Its addition to my tote would be difficult if Grandmother's security guard woke up. I found myself involuntarily up and out of my intensely padded Titanic-style deck chair. I stalked out of the courtship palace and down the path towards the perfectly trimmed, chest-high boxwood hedge that separated the two properties. They're ladybugs, Miss Bettina, Claire said. Ladybugs eat aphids? That's a good thing. Excuses, Claire, excuses. And I've told you before, address me as Lady Bettina. Many modern Australians are embarrassed by their inherited English titles and either never mention them or actively hide them. Not Bettina. She attempted to have all her silk teachers call her Lady Bettina. It was not a popular move. The stone pathway was annoyingly uneven and was wreaking havoc on my balance and my heels. So I broke a cardinal etiquette rule by gluing my eyes to my feet. I'd had some bad experiences with heels and tripping. It can lead to surprisingly flammable catastrophes. I was wearing ankle-length grey Dior home pants, so I had a clear view of my feet, which were encased in a pair of perfectly manageable Jimmy Choo stilettos and a pale tailored silk shirt, buttoned bra-line low in rebellion, which was fine because grandmother was 17,000 kilometres away. Even so, I could hear her voice in my head. Indigo, for goodness sake, look up, child. Your feet cannot possibly be that interesting. Why is your shirt like that? Have you lost half your buttons? I slowed my stalk to a walk and peeled my eyes off the ground. Bettina! I growled venomously. Be quiet! Even from a distance, I could see Bettina's head swivel towards me and her eyes narrow. It had been years since I'd seen her in person. I was astonished to discover that her nose had changed shape yet again. Look what the cat dragged in, Claire, Bettina said, not looking at Claire. It's Cat's little kitten, Indy Slow. Bettina had been using the same witty taunt since the third grade. Claire was sharp enough to know a diversion when she saw one. She began backing away from the briefly distracted Bettina. I'm going to go find Dame Lizzie. She can explain the jonquils better than me. You mean Dame Elizabeth? Bettina snarled, her head snapping back to see Claire's swift retreat. Right you are, Miss Bettina, Claire said, her head nodding as she ran. I'll go get Dame Lizzie Holly. But she's not home, Bettina yelled after her. Too late, Claire was gone. I didn't expect her back. Wise?
Bettina made an exasperated face and turned her attention to me. Shouldn't you be in jail or something for killing your dead husband? We weren't eight anymore. I was going to rise above the insults. Bettina, please, just be quiet, I said, desperately trying to channel some serenity. We don't all need to know what you think about your grandmother's gardener. With my eyes confidently fixed on Bettina, I navigated my way down the last section of the garden path, twisting between hedges and beds of fresh, fresh spring flowers. I peered more closely at her. What on earth are you wearing? Did you steal that poor woman's clothing as well as her dignity? It just popped out. In fairness, they didn't teach serenity at Silk, and Bettina was sporting an awful lot of khaki, and there were pockets in everything. I couldn't see her feet, but my money was on Birkenstocks. Shut up, Indigo, she spat, dusting dirt off her cargo pants. Shouldn't you have your hooks into another dull, pudgy accountant by now? I was busy ignoring the fact that Richard was a reconstructive plastic surgeon, not a bookkeeper, as I attempted to correct my footing and stay upright on the rocky garden path. Perhaps manageable was not the best word to describe my shoes? I was more falling than walking towards the hedge line. What's the matter, kitten? prodded Bettina, lurking her way towards the hedge. Cacochita? Just as I rounded a particularly curvy bend, my arm whipped up to point at her. Bettina, you absolute... My violent arm action threw me even further off balance. My feet twisted beneath me, taking me off the rocky path and onto the soft lawn. One spiky seal, one spiky satin heel sank suddenly into the damp green grass, while my other foot tripped over something. I looked down, ready to brace my fall, and there, lying almost directly below me, dressed like a severely underpaid gardener, his head and shoulders partially hidden in a bed of gorgeous pink oriental lilies, was a man, an old man, a dead man. An old dead man, stiff as a board, and I fell on him like a tree being felled to the forest floor. I woke up face to face with death. It felt a lot like lying on an ironing board. Most unpleasant. Not that I'd ever touched an ironing board, but what I imagined it might feel like. Hard and covered in unflatteringly coloured, coarse, ill-fitting cotton. I was completely horrified and immediately passed out again. We Haslop Royces do not do well with mortification. It tends to make us throw up and then pass out. Although the reflex has stopped many drunk ancestors from choking to death, it has, in my opinion, outlived its usefulness. I was, to the best of my knowledge, the only Hasluck Royce who, with hard work, determination and the resolve not to be completely ridiculous, had kicked the vomiting part. I was still working on the fainting. I woke up, annoyed that I'd passed out again, wondering if it was at all possible to avoid the police if one found a dead body. Dude, I heard Esmeralda's voice from above me. He's like, dead. No kidding, I screeched at her. Help get me up. You're conscious? I thought you'd be like totally passed out. 
I've passed out and come to you twice already. Where the hell have you been? I said, straining to see her. I don't know. I was checking out the floor in there, she said, gesturing to the orchid palace. It's funky. How interesting could a concrete floor possibly be? I don't care about the floor, I yelled. Get me off this body before I faint again. I prayed Bettina was not witnessing this humiliating spectacle. Given my luck, she was probably live-streaming it. Esmeralda attempted to lift me off the corpse by grabbing both my shoulders and pulling me directly upwards. Perhaps, having spent so much time watching YouTube or memes on her endlessly updated smartphone, she was endeavouring to simply hit rewind on the fall. I would have had to have been as stiff as the corpse and significantly lighter to make that a possibility. And I was dropped twice before she gave up on that method and switched to trying to heft me over her shoulder like a sack of potatoes. This was more successful, but not a complete success. And again, I found myself face to face with the dead man. Eventually, I shooed Esmeralda away and, seeing no other options, placed my hands variously on his stiff shoulders, chest, left hip, right thigh, and eventually foot, until I was in a standing position. Jesus, Indigo! I heard Bettina holler from what sounded like much closer quarters. I've seen newborn foals get up faster and with more grace. Why is that guy passed out in your grandmother's yard? She's going to be livid. Bettina was no doubt drawn by the heady smell of humiliation in the spring air. She wedged her sharp, tiny frame between two of the boxwood hedges that separated our grandmother's gardens and forced her way through. She strode towards me, phone held upright in both hands at chest height. I heard the distinctive whoosh of something being digitally transmitted. I prayed it was a text to her dentist, but I doubted it. Bettina's social media network would be primordial and vast. It would be the heiress on fire all over again, only this time I'd be the heiress of horror. That did not constitute zero publicity or extremely good behaviour. There was no way I was going to pass out on top of that body again. I stopped my ruined Jimmy Choo stiletto deep into the lawn and anchored my swaying form. Esmeralda moved quickly towards Bettina. Is that the new iPhone? There was a blur of arms, a pop, and Bettina was suddenly, inexplicably, seated on the lawn on her khaki-clad derriere and her phone neatly pitched into a nearby fountain. Yup. Dude, Esmeralda said, dusting Bettina down and helping her up all at once. That lawn's like pretty friggin' slippery. It all happened so quickly that Bettina was briefly stunned into silence. Esmeralda turned her focus to me. It's not like dead dudes are totally gross or anything, she said, eyeing the corpse apologetically, but I'd like prefer not to hang with them. They tend to attract cops, and I'd prefer not to hang with them either. I could feel her mind racing through the likely upcoming scenarios. Police are called. Names are taken. Names are run. Names pop up in the system. Parole officers are called. People are searched. 
bags are searched. Uncomfortable explanations are required. Grandmother's two borrowed oil masters were a good example of things which might require an explanation. I'm going ahead, she said, stepping away. Yes, good idea. Perhaps you would be so kind as to take my luggage home? And I jerked my head towards the orchid palace where my tote lay. Yep, she nodded in agreement. Totally. Hello, Bettina piped up, coming out of her Esmeralda shock. You may not leave. You took my phone. I'm pressing charges. I was never here, Esmeralda said convincingly. Getting to her feet, Bettina shot Esmeralda a sour look. She was clearly unimpressed by Esmeralda's blatant attempt at gaslighting. You might have thrown my phone into the fountain, but I've already posted the video to Insta. I willed myself to stay focused. Passing out would not help. Bullshit, Esmeralda responded. Really? I asked Esmeralda in surprise. Bettina is a bit of a, you know, posting the video to Instagram does seem like something she would do. I heard the swish. Totally not her posting sound, Esmeralda replied confidently. Totally her texting sound. You don't know that, Bettina raged, her face turning the same shade as the pink oriental lilies. She peered at Esmeralda, assessing her thoroughly for the first time. Who the hell are you? Dude, Esmeralda said, as if explaining something to a toddler. I'm not here. Bettina gritted her teeth. Fine, be like that. She turned her attention to me. And I thought your taste in weirdo BFs couldn't sink any lower. A quick swipe at my longtime best friend, Anna Del Rico. Anna was a serial lover. After her recent annulment, 19 really was too young, Anna was living in the US, being pursued by a besotted ball sports player of some kind. He was undoubtedly gorgeous and between the ages of 20, Anna's new minimum age requirement for matrimony, and 25, several years older than her previous maximum age. If Anna were a man, they'd give her an award and write songs about her, but she was not, hence the dig. Bettina stepped towards me, almost standing on the body between us. Your psycho friend is right, though. I detect it. To Dylan Moss. Dylan Moss? My stomach flipped and my feet felt slippery underneath me. In the dessert bar of men, Dylan Moss was an oven-warm blondie with hot caramel fudge and bright candy sprinkles. He was my first love and had scorched my 16-year-old heart so badly that I swore off delicious males forever, opting for safe, reliable brand muffins like Richard. Except Richard had not been a brand muffin. Don't pass out. Maybe Bettina did send a video of you falling over a dead body to the man who broke your heart and humiliated you. Maybe she didn't. There will be a way to find out. There will be a way to get the video back. Think. Bettina roughly poked the poor man with her foot. I was horrified. And then it dawned on me. Bettina didn't realise he was dead. She was attempting 
to wake a corpse. Thanks so much to Kelly. That was awesome. Murder Most Fancy is out now with HarperCollins and you'll find it wherever you find great books. And if you were inspired by Kelly's fabulous advice to do all the writerly things like listen to writing podcasts, which you're already doing, or enrol in short courses, then the Australian Writer Centre is the perfect place to start. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Thanks for listening to this special episode of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writer Centre. Connect with us on social media at writercentreau, on Twitter and Instagram, and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Both Alison and I will be back to our regular programming in your next episode. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.